In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, Christ talks about the perennial struggle between Christians and the world, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Yet the specific contours of that struggle will be different in different situations. As much as Christ proclaims that his message of salvation is meant for all peoples, male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, he acknowledges that each of these groups will struggle to accept and to live out the gospel for different reasons. You've probably already seen this in yourself and in other people that you know. Some struggle to believe certain aspects of the faith, while others struggle to practice what they believe consistently. Some are eager to immerse themselves in the theological teachings of the faith, but then they struggle to pray to develop a spiritual life. Others may pray fervently, but then neglect the intellectual development that would make their prayer more fruitful. But Jesus also hints at another salient difference that affects people in hearing the good news, one that we are apt to forget. He often premises a statement by saying, this generation, as in, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Although the scriptures are valid for all times and places, it's clear that there are situations where Jesus is addressing the specific circumstances that he finds himself in and the people that he is surrounded by. This is one of the reasons why the fact of the Incarnation, and indeed all of Old and New Testament Revelation, can be so hard for some people to accept. Many struggle with the idea that the inbreaking of God into our world could have occurred in such a specific time and place, involved so much in the messiness of history. Now, certainly everything that Jesus is quoted as saying in the Gospels will be important to us as modern-day Christians. But we have to recognize, too, that certain sayings or actions that he did would have been especially pregnant with meaning or challenge for Jews living in first-century Palestine. This points to the generation-by-generation differences that will be experienced in accepting and living out the faith. Jesus, for example, lived at a time in which the question was not whether to have faith, but rather how to have faith, whereas we live in an age that questions the value of religious faith altogether. That's a pitfall that we can easily overlook as modern Christians, in that even as we live in a time and a culture that is increasingly post-Christian, we can be blind to the ways in which the things that Jesus says can sound all too commonplace to us. Because a certain amount of Christian sentiment is still ambient in our world. So we forget how the same words would have sounded completely foreign to a Jew in the first century. A good example would be love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now in truth, most people fail to live up to this ideal. And in fact, a lot of people don't even try. Indeed, I think in our current political and social culture, we may be jettisoning this as an aspirational ideal to begin with. But that said, it doesn't sound completely foreign to us. There's still a little lip service paid here and there to that kind of Christian humility and graciousness. But to a Jew in Jesus' time, or in fact any person in that time, this would have sounded downright crazy. Not crazy as in, that sounds nice, but who can really be that holy? 
rather crazy in the sense that hating your enemies was considered a positive virtue. You punished your enemies. You certainly didn't pray for them. But this is where we, as modern Christians, have to be vigilant. We can lose the sight of the radicalness of Christ's message. And when we assume that we can separate out the nice parts from the hard, challenging, or mysterious parts. Which is exactly what modern people have done. People believed, and still believe, that you can separate Christian love and forgiveness from the church, from the sacraments, and from a life of piety. That we can love our neighbors as ourselves while ignoring God, and then justify that heresy by misinterpreting the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. That which you did for the least among you, you did unto me. It's for these reasons that John the Baptist is now often described as the forgotten man of the New Testament, and that we as modern Christians are apt to overlook his significance. He's described in the gospel as the one who was the herald of the coming of Christ, one who announced Christ's coming by preaching a message of repentance. Since we in the present age have access to the entire story of Jesus in the Gospels, we are apt to think that a deep understanding of John the Baptist is unnecessary for us. That it would be like going back and watching a trailer after you've already seen the movie. Sort of pointless. But we must remember the words of St. Augustine. The New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the old is unveiled in the new. John the Baptist, although he is a character of the New Testament, is in a sense like one of the last prophets of the Old Covenant. He, as much as anyone in the Old Testament, fits the words of St. Peter, that the prophets were the ones to whom it was given, the foreshadowing of the mystery of Christ, the commission to preach it. John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. His father, Zechariah, was one of the temple priests. His mother, Elizabeth, was from the priestly class of Aaron. So it would have been expected that he himself would become a priest. Yet where we meet John is not in the temple, but in the desert where he is preaching repentance. Not the repentance offered by the holocaust of bulls and goats, but repentance in the form of baptism. Showing us that in Christ there will be a new form of repentance that can be enacted anywhere where there is flowing water. Not just in the forms of sacrifice offered by the temple ritual. Now, as modern-day people, Christian or not, we are unlikely to look to temple sacrifice for the remission of our sins. But the enduring value of John the Baptist, even to us who are now Christian, is that he calls us to recognize the need, even in our times, for continuing conversion. We need to be called periodically to an even deeper commitment to our Christian faith, because too often our faith can be put on a kind of autopilot. We go on living the gospel halfway, and over time, we become content with that. But John the Baptist came eating locusts and wild honey and wearing a camel hair cloak. We need to look for those people, metaphorically speaking, in our own time. I don't mean people that have the superficial trappings of radicalness. For all I know, locusts and wild honey are the new hipster diet. But we need to listen to those who have the true zeal of prophets the ones crying out in the desert, the ones making us uncomfortable by their fidelity to the gospel, not to the spirit of the age, the ones calling us to the radicalness of faith in our time, rather than compromise with the status quo. The words of Jesus Christ himself tell us 
that John the Baptist was no mere prelude. Rather, the Baptist exemplifies an important witness to the faith without which the example of Christ would itself be meaningless. Jesus says, Then to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in a marketplace and call to one another. We played a flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating food nor drinking wine, and you said he is possessed by a demon. But then the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, Look, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.